0: Blog Talk Radio <laughs>
1: And hello, folks! Once again, it is Friday. It is on my mom mind podcast with CR and Adrian, and once again we go into the breach. Um, You may see a couple of familiar faces today. We have Adrian, and we also have Doc Z with us. Uh, We're going to be talking about a subject um, that has quite. Quite a controversy around it. Uh, I figured the three of us would talk about it because we lived in in the area where this happened. Um, but this event happened in 1971, so let's go ahead and do our introductions. Adrienne, how are you doing today? I'm doing good,
2: but I I just want to crack up on this topic. And I'm like, if you walked in the forest and ate magic mushrooms, and then you went to like a huge pot party and smoked the heaviest dope in the room, you would come up with a story about Dan Cooper.
1: All right. And what do you think, uh, Doxy? Well, being what I am,
0: Cooper. <laughs> uh, this is new uh, I
1: uh, know, one. Of the big vault downstairs. Oh, well. FBI is going to be knocking at the door in...
2: Too... <laughs> you know, hon, I know we're we're looking older. I mean. It... <laughs>
1: to November 24th of 1971, so Thanksgiving Day of 1971. And I would say it's probably around, oh, maybe noon, 1 o'clock, um, and we're in Portland, Oregon at the airport. Um, and there's you can just imagine it. There's a bunch of people, you know, you you think you'd already be where you needed to be, but people are are showing up for Thanksgiving or, or leaving. Um, so <clears throat> there was a pl- There was a flight scheduled for two fifty in the afternoon Pacific time. Um, Fly up to Seattle Tacoma Airport, SeaTac. Uh, um, <clears throat> a gentleman walks in wearing a uh, just a standard run of the mill. Um, business suit with a rope tie with a tie tack with sunglasses. He walks up to the Northwest Orient counter and he plops down, get this, he plops down a $20 bill and buys a ticket for the connector between Portland and CTAC. Oh, wow. And get this, free 911, no security checks, what Soever, and this plane loaded on the tarmac. So, so cr. Yeah.
2: Let me get let me get this in my mind, kind of unpacking it. We mm-hmm. talked about this. So I can go to the counter, flop um, down cash, which is not, of course, not traceable. You could probably do it today as well. But then, <laughs> if they don't get my ID. So well, I can you know, put. You know, yeah, I can put I'm Elvis Presley or right. whatever. And If the person in front of me doesn't
1: want
0: to challenge me, yep. then
1: I'm Elvis Presley. They didn't care
0: who you were as long as you had the money. Right. Well, and well, twenty dollars.
2: Yeah.
1: When he when he signed his name for the ticket, he signed it, uh, D. Cooper. Um, they don't know where, a lot of people don't know where the DB came from. Maybe it was a smudge or something, but he originally, like on the original ticket, it says D Cooper. Um, Did it say D or did it say Dan?
2: I don't remember.
1: Um, some people say it was an abbreviation, so it was D Cooper. A lot of people say he wrote down Dan Cooper. Um which would, would go to show with the, the picture of the comic you have there, which that was it. That was a popular comic.
2: Um, right. Then Cooper was a super cool comic dude who parachuted into danger and was the hero of the hour in France, jumping on a plane. Well, I don't know. Is it in France or did I just like, pick up French? Right. I I don't know, but yeah, it could have been
1: French yep. even. So, like I was saying, you know, he no security check. No
2: ID check.
1: No ID check.
2: That's, that's the thing here is that yep. Dan Cooper is a totally fictitious name. Definitely. Yep. And nobody checks it, right? right. In 1971, so I'm like, Yep. And forgive me for thinking this, but there was part of myself today that
0: was, oh, uh, that might be cool. Well, I mean, <laughs> I,
1: I can remember a time, you know, when Dad and I would come pick you up from the airport. We'd park the car. We'd walk through security and we'd get to sit at the gate without oh, yeah. without purchasing a ticket. Pre-97, but, right? Right. So... He buys his ticket, no security, no no ID check, and like I was uh, saying, there's no jet bridge on this one. So he's walking down a set of
0: stairs onto what the tarmac. Do you, what do you mean by school? old school, they walk out
2: on the tarmac. Yep. Okay, like today, you're like unless you're getting a really small flight, right? You don't have to walk on the tarmac. But what you're saying is like back then.
1: Yep. Pretty much. Certain certain domestic flights, you would walk out onto the tarmac, or you would go in, get on a bus, and they would bus you out to the plane. But this is
2: a seven fifty seven, so this isn't a small plane.
1: This is this is actually a this seven. 15, this is actually a seven twenty seven one hundred.
2: Twenty seven.
1: Yeah. So I was the, okay. the
2: the
1: 27100 was the first iteration of the 727. Gotcha. Um, and this, so no jet bridge being extended to it. Uh, now you're thinking, okay, how are they getting on? Do they have a, a set of stairs that are rolled up? Well, actually, something that was interesting about this 727, the early ones, is they had a set of aft stairs that would drop out of the tail, and that's how you would get onto the plane. That's how you would board and deboard. Mm-hmm. So everybody gets on board. Um, this is Northwest Orient, flight 305, SAA tail number, November 467 um if for the AB geeks out there that's really cool to have the tail number but it's a boeing 727 100 with a rear staircase
2: wow you know all the times that you guys either took me to the airport and picked me up and i rode on some good sized planes never would i have ever boarded in a staircase in the rear of the plane right But you're saying with the flights as they were at this time period in 71, Mm -hmm.
1: that was common. Yeah, it was commonplace. At at least at the smaller and Portland, I think if I remember right, Portland's not really international.
2: I'm thinking it is. Uh, But I I could be wrong, Chris.
1: Probably one of the smaller airports.
2: I, I could be mixing it with Seattle or um, where Elmo go a
0: lot. that was... Um, Even in Rochester, they were coming up the ladder into the, into the plane.
2: Yeah. Right. And I, you know what? I've, I've taken a lot of these flights
0: where you had to go on the tarmac,
2: you work walk the steps, but it was typically a pedal jumper between right. like Minnesota and North Dakota. And then, of course, we'd always have a because our consulting director would, would, would like, uh, schedule us to go to North Dakota in in February. It's like, oh, my God. Right. Yeah, and so um, I've been there many times, but never, never on a big plane.
1: Right. Ever. So he goes out. To the tarmac, forged the air stairs, his seat and that back in those times, the back of the plane was smoking section. You could actually and that's got to blow people's minds for today too. I mean back in the 70s, all the way up until the early early 80s mm-hmm. they had smoking sections on the plane. Here,
2: mm-hmm. when I first came
1: from <clears throat> Japan to meet Doc C. and his family in Minneapolis, they have smoking sections of plane. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I know exactly what we are talking about. Um, you had a crew of six. Uh, Captain William Scott, co-pilot Bob uh, Massick. Flight engineer was Federal Anderson. And then we had three flight attendants. Allison, Tina uh, Muckle, and Florence Schaeffer. Uh, remember, Tina uh, Muckle, she
0: was, she had had direct contact with the crew.
1: So within the crew of 60, engines start up the taxi, they and they take off. Uh, after departure, uh mr db D. cooper ordered the orders orders apartment seven uh which is
0: um and as soon as she hands him that drink
1: he hands her a pre-written note uh and so she goes back to her jump seat and she reads the note and looks like, roughly the note says something to the lines of I have a bomb, come sit with me. I'll use it if I have to. So let's just think about that. I mean, this is 2.50 in the afternoon. This flight originated, these people's workday originated in Washington, D.C., early morning. So they've come up the eastern seaboard, um, they even made a stop through Minneapolis-St. Paul, and then they flew out uh, and to Portland, and this was their last run of the day. Um, so just, just put that in your mind. is you, you worked this, what, and 12-hour day? This is your last leg? And you hand this guy a drink, and he hands you a piece of paper. You sit down, and you read it. And you know, is this a joke? What's going on? She's got that. She's got that in her mind. So she gets up, she sits down next to him. He's his brain of cigarettes were rallied. So he's probably smoking a rally talking to her. And um he just matter of factly says, Well, here it is and he pulls open his attache case and shows her there's a couple of lumps with a bunch of wires and maybe an egg timer. Um, It's all speculation because they've never found an attache case and they've never found the presumed bomb. So it's just presumption on, on what it was. Could have been a bomb, could have been a bunch of stuff put together. But anyway, you know, Here's what we're gonna do. Hands her another note, and says, "I need you to go up to the cockpit." So she grabs this cock, this this um, this note and goes up to the cockpit. At that time, at that time, it was not a secure cockpit in the air. Okay. Um, so she just walks in, I'm assuming, and hands uh, Captain Scott this note, and the note demands. Uh, them to land at SeaTac also demands $200,000 in cash and four parachutes. Now, mind you, it's a 727 with an air stair. So at this point, I'm thinking that he probably knew what he was going to do, and he knew the aircraft he had to do it off of. So Captain Scott, while they're in the air, um, calls ETAC and declares a hijacking. You know, and in that in that instance, as soon as a hijacking is, is declared, uh, FBI is contacted, and they're going to want to know uh, how many POB or how many uh, persons aboard you have. So they would they would tell them six crew plus, you know, the thirty seven. Um, and then, then the biggest thing for the government is, okay, you know, they're, they're in Portland, they're on their way here. How are we going to get $200,000? Well, wouldn't you know they were able to pull it off in time? Um, so, and if they
0: show up, um,
1: I don't know if it's a show of grace, but if it's
0: a, a show of
1: okay, well, you know, you gave me my demands. Passengers go, and he lets. <clears throat> so he lets the passengers, and he lets Alice Hancock and Florence Schaffner go. So, you've got the three gentlemen on the flight deck, and you've got Tina Mufflow still um so, so our, yep
2: he was kind of like that james bond dirty criminal i would be like the fbi person like this is nothing more than um, a horrible criminal right uh, but he has become folklore to, to many people
0: oh
1: he's huge he's a huge uh hero to some people you know, just to the fact that he was able to stick it to the van. Um, so <clears throat> they refuel on the tarmac. He gives us $200,000. He gets his parachute. And they go airborne,
0: and he held well, it was late to him. have that range for seven twenty seven. We're gonna have to put down the regional somewhere.
1: And somewhere among that communication, uh, Reno Reno Nevada was brought up and he said yeah. So what did you do with
2: that point like Doctor Well just I did say sure, sure, why not He seems to be some kind of a knowledgeable guy. Go ahead, Dan. I don't
1: know. Um, They wouldn't
0: know how much fuel they have, what their range would be. Right.
2: Which he? that was a question because he's, like, so smart in other areas. I guess that's
0: the, you know, it. um, you know he, it's pretty easy to research, you know, what the fuel uh, quantity is. And,
1: and the consumption you
2: know. rate. For him to say, I want to go to Mexico, you know, maybe I would say something like that because I would right. have no clue. But here's this guy who knows what he needs to do to get some parachute on board and he's Obviously, it's going to have comfort with jumping. He's saying, oh, I'm playing along with this, like, um, oh, you don't have enough to go to Mexico. Then, you yeah, know, right. rain or something. You know what I mean? Like, it might just being too
0: analytical or... <laughs> well,
2: and,
1: you know, <clears throat> the one thing I didn't do was look at the range in the fuel consumption for a standard 727, but... Usually, if a pilot tells you, hey, we don't have the range, you, you don't have the range.
0: Um, right. <clears throat> so I have heard sort of them um, landing somewhere because they're running low on fuel,
1: uh, and having
0: a fuel truck come out to them, refuel them so that they can take off and get out of there. Right. Um, in case something was going to go on with the plane. Yep. And maybe it did get a man. It would be bad kind of trauma.
1: Well that happened in like Iran or something like that in the late eighties. Yeah. That's that that's for a whole other show. Um, right. so they refuel. They the passengers de he gets his parachute, he gets his two hundred thousand dollars. They that's get a, clear
2: think, I'm sorry. Yep. I wanted to call out Thank you, Seattle first bank. They were, I think there, that was the bank where they had to get like 20 grand an order in 20 that were sequenced in a matter of what, do you think hours and get that yeah. packed in the bag and
0: off to the- right?
1: right.
2: Well, were they not brilliant in making it twenties? 20 because I've read that that's part of that, um, thing that. The hijacker wasn't wise enough to say, hey, mm-hmm. "Give me fifty or hundred dollar yeah. bill," because yeah. of the amount
1: of weight that had jumped with. So they leave CTAC; they're airborne, and uh, you know he's in the back of the plane. Still, there's nobody on board. He's sitting in his assigned seat. He never moved. He was in he was in 18, which is if you look at the third engine on the top of the wing there, right yeah. where the engine starts is right where the seat would be. Yeah. Um, so and I, I've been on a 27 and I've sat in the back and they are pretty loud because they got that third engine interested. there. Yeah. Yeah. So. They get airborne, and I'm sure he's sitting back there having another Raleigh. Um, they say he went through, like, a pack and a half.
2: Well, he went through half a pack of Raleigh, and he only had one bourbon drink. Right. Because I was looking at that, like, going, okay, you know, one gives me, like, super nervous, but you don't
0: want to drink alcohol." So
1: yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: So... He hands Tina uh, another note. And at this point, he said, when you deliver this note, stay in the cockpit and shut the door. So, and you, you gotta be asking yourself, okay, um, well, we, we know he asked for four parachutes, but why would they be saying stay in the cockpit? So the note said, uh, drop to or below 10,000 feet AGL and pull all the flaps and slats out and pull pull the landing gear down and stay in that orientation. So they slowed the plane down. They dropped below 10,000 feet. And basically all that is is a landing configuration to get the, the plane to go slow. Um, so they pull the flaps and slats out, they put the landing gear down, they um drop below ten thousand feet, and just as they got it configured, um co pilot uh Retic looks at uh Captain Scott and goes, Hey, I have the uh aft stair warning light uh on my on my panel here. Which that means the aft stairs down. Uh, flew that way, and the only, the only other thing that they got was a cabin pressure warning. Uh, the rear cabin was depressurized, which means it goes from nice and comfortable and warm to minus seven Fahrenheit at a snap of the finger. Uh,
2: and
1: loud. And loud. And they're at 10,000 feet.
2: And with with that, um, would Cooper
1: have jumped right away at that point? Uh, Probably not right away. He probably would want to get his bearings and try and get a sense of where he's jumping. Um, You don't just – well, I'm going to say a caveat here. I have never jumped, but I have jump training uh, with my reenacting. I was in a, a 101st Airborne reenacting group, and we did all the jump training, uh, World War II jump training, but I have a working theory of, of what you need to do. And um, you're not just going to willy-nilly jump out. You need to... Um, First, stand at the door and figure out where your horizon is, figure out where everything is going, um, and you're, you're basically your own jump master. So you're looking at the hazards you're jumping into. So I, I'm sure he probably would have stood there for a couple of minutes trying to get his bearings and and steal himself. Because um, at this point, it's dark.
2: Uh-huh.
1: Um, So he's jumping into nothingness, which normal people won't do. The only people that will jump into nothingness is uh, military. People
2: who have done it and survived and know that it's possible versus those of us who would never even like walk on the stairway. Correct. It would be terrifying. You know,
0: I am like, yeah,
1: somebody who has experience with this, right? So, um, so they're flying around, you know, and they're up in the cockpit, so they and the door's shut, so they they don't have any cameras, they they can't keep an eye on on DB and what he's doing, so, um. What they do feel they when he leaves the aft ramp, because you've you've got to think of it as a teeter totter. Uh-huh. So that aft ramp is loaded. So when he jumps, it's going to pop up like a springboard, and it's going to fling the the tail end of the aircraft into the air a little bit. And that's what they felt.
2: Oh, so they knew it in the cockpit.
1: The minute the minute he Geronimo, they they felt it manually. Now, would they you know, I think they were flying in a fixed position. Would they have known their
2: position and the time that he jumped?
1: Uh well, seventy one. So GPS was not out yet. Um so they at that time they were using radio beacons to know their fixed location. So yeah, I mean they could they could do a mathematical triangulation and and figure out. I mean they're not going to have a pinpoint spot of where they're at, but they can.
2: Not a hundred percent.
1: Right, they would they you know probably within a couple miles figure out where they were. Um, and that that was it for that night. Was they. Um, you know, they he jumped out, and I think, I can't remember if they continued on to Reno or if they diverted back to SeaTac because they were still in Washington State. They weren't that far from SeaTac, uh, but okay. the only thing is they were out over the forest.
2: Would they have done over water? Because that's what some speculate too. And I don't, I don't know if it was the Columbia or right off the Columbia River, but there is, um, there's a lot of water where he jumped. Right. So that's one of the theories. Is like, okay, well, maybe um, he made it, but then he landed in water with all parachute cord, and the temperature is being right above freezing. He wouldn't have much time right. to Right
0: get out
1: of that water and save Right. Um, so, and, and here's another factor that will probably lead, lead into Doc V's theory. Um, so when he demanded the four parachutes, um, if you could bring that slide back up. Um sure. he, he demanded four parachutes. And <clears throat> he got four of them, but he got two different types. He got a military type and this this type is the type that i'm familiar with um a normally this is jumped called the static line which you clip a line to the inside of the plane and when you jump out it pulls your chute out of the bag for you but these can be uh, manually operated so he ended up getting two of these and then he ended up getting two sport parachutes, which the military parachutes are a round canopy. If you want to go to the next slide, please. <clears throat> that's the military reserve. So the military comes with, with two pieces.
2: Well,
1: that's, that's, your, that's your, oh, crap, my main didn't open. That's, that's your lifeline right there. Uh, that that has another round shoot in it, and that's on your chest. Um, you see the two the two little back there? Yeah. yeah. Those would have metal D rings on them, and those those D rings would clip that reserve onto your chest. Now the interesting thing that I read in the FBI report is that. He had a he had two presumably two fully functioning military sets, but it was said that one of the military reserves lacked the D rings to attach it to the chest ring um, so he had two military sets, and then if you go to the next slide, he was given two sports shoots. Um, and the sport the sport chute is on the right. That's called a Ram Air. The nice thing about the Ram Air is those are steerable, and those are what civilians jump, and those are what beginners use because they're highly steerable and they're highly flyable. Um, the one on the left is the military chute. You can steer military chutes. But not so much. I mean, to steer a military chute, you got to climb your shroud line almost all the way up to the canopy for to get it to turn. Wow. Um. So <laughs> the interesting thing was, and uh, to parlay back with the cash is you were correct. You didn't specify the denomination of the bill. So. They got him twenty-dollar bills, um, and unbeknownst to him, they were all photographed with a camera, with a microfiche camera, uh, so they could track the. They were sequential twenties, so they could they could track them if they ever got into circulation. Okay. Well. He never specified the denomination, so they were all twenties. Think of a two hundred dollars, two hundred thousand dollars worth of twenties in a bag. That that's going to change your flight characteristics. And one thing that Doc Z and I read before the show is when the fbi boarded the plane when it landed they found the reserve chute without the d-rings opened up and all the uh suspension lines were cut away from the canopy and the suspension lines were gone so this means well this means that he opened that chute He cut the suspension lines away, and he uses suspension lines to tie that bag to his chest.
2: Okay, because that's what I said. I was like, okay, so you've got that parachute on your front and part of your back, and then you're jumping in business clothes with, like, no gloves and probably business shoes. And how do you strap this?
1: I mean, he did leave, he did leave his tie and tie tack behind what getting this far doc z what are what are your theories? What do you think happened? Well, I don't
0: know i It doesn't seem like a very well planned out thing. Uh, I would imagine he probably hit some water when he came down. That would be why you would never find anything. Uh, some would wash up on the shore. Otherwise, if it was on land, you'd find parachutes, rigging, um, buckles, that kind of thing. Right. We have not found any of that. we so You can't no. find any things to the river. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. I, <clears throat> I, I th- you know, I think about what
1: you say, C.R., like he's in
2: a parachute. To the shoot that he's probably familiar with, perhaps from military background, mm-hmm. but it's not very suitable. Where are you going? You're you're dropping between Battle and Portland, or on the way to Reno, or whatever in that area.
1: You bring up, it's funny that you bring up a 100-foot tree. I mean, there are 100-foot trees out there, and if you get hung up in a 100-foot tree, you ain't climbing out of it.
2: Right, and Doc, then you, like when you were a scuba diver, you scuba dive, you always have a buddy, right? So I guess parachuting, when you're a crook, you don't want to have
1: And you see in the jumpsuit that I have. So right about here on the zipper, there's a little secondary zipper pocket, enough to fit a little uh, pocket knife. <clears throat> and they had a paratrooper pocket knife that was spring-loaded that you would – there's a little D-ring on this knife that you would tie a piece of paracord to, and you would tie that paracord to one of your epaulets. Um so it wouldn't drop away. But basically, you would keep those stinking razor sharp. And the theory was, is that anytime you got hung up in a tree, after you um, tied your letdown rope up, you would take that spring loaded knife out, and you would cut away your suspension line. And then you could, um, if you were tangled up, usually... Right at your shoulders here on the harness are two hard connectors that you just pop, and they'll pop away. So would that, have um, been
2: Cooper's situation as well. If he, you know, if he did land on a tree and he was actually conscious and not killed by the yeah, if, um, if attack.
1: If he didn't have injuries and he was conscious, and there, there's going to be a couple of things there. Uh, if you're hung up in a tree at night you can't tell how far you're up. And the second is you can't tell what's underneath you.
2: Um,
1: In World War II, uh, the fellas carried something called a letdown rope, which was just a white rope, and it was 30 feet of rope that was coiled up under, uh, they'd hang it off of their haversack to where they could get to it. So if they're within 30 feet of the ground, they can tie it to something. They can cut their shroud lines and let themselves down. But if they're higher than that, you're, you're, you're kind of S.O.L. Uh-huh. Um, and I was thinking, that's kind of my theory. He either got tied right up in the tree or, Doc Z's theory, he hit the water and a chute wrapped around him and drug him down, which that's happened. Um my other theory, she just strengthened my theory because I was reading the FBI report and I read something that the guy who packed the chutes said. Um, so he was given four chutes, two sports yeah. chutes and two military chutes. Now, one of those four chutes was an instruction-only parachute. Which means it is not to be jumped with because it will not work. It is a static display chute. It only means is to familiarize students with the shape and size of a parachute and the different parts
0: that go to it.
1: Correctly, so they
2: they gave him a bad chute.
1: <laughs> they they intentionally shell gamed a dud chute into his pack into his four parachutes.
2: Okay. Did he
1: know it? No, he did not.
0: Hmm.
1: So, but they never, they never said, yeah, we recovered, you know, three shoots and one of them was a dud. They never said that.
2: So he
1: chose well. He either chose well and he just had a crappy accident or he chose poorly and he chose the dud.
0: Um,
2: Well, you know, that's where my mind goes, because, um, as Doc can tell you, I have way too far of an interest in murder mysteries and figuring things out. I would have liked, first of all, we should poison them on the plane, and then secondly, we should not, we should give them all rigged parachutes. And obviously, he chose four to to check that out.
1: Right. Well, and my other my other theory is that he had a malfunction in air. Um, it is common for your shroud lines to get wrapped up in each other. Uh, it's commonly known as a gift wrap because basically what happens is your shroud lines get twisted and when they twist, um, part of the parachute loses its air so part of the chute will slump down. And you're only running on half of the resistance. If your shroud lines get tangled, they teach you to uh, pedal your legs like you're pedaling a bicycle. And that should put enough twist into it that it will pop it out. But who knows? I mean, he's jumping at night at nice. 10,000 feet. Who but, knows? Who knows what the wind was doing that night?
2: Well, I think they—they they did. I mean, they did have some wind, and it was right above freezing. Right. But the water would have been right above freezing if he did fall into it.
1: Yeah. And the
2: shoot and everything tied to him. Right. I don't know. I just don't see that him having like his a little Pollyanna criminal future.
1: Right, and so. Kind of of jumping into now, um, you know, it's 2023, and technically the case has been um, paused. The search for him has been paused, but the case is open.
2: Sierra, do they know how old he was? Because let's say he was 30 if
0: he was 30 when he did that, he'd be um, Let me check my notes here. Maybe
1: he was young, much younger. So. Mid-40s business suit, black tie, white shirt. Yeah. So. He, he's in the he, 40s, he's yeah. Um,
2: so, mid-40s. Yeah. So, yeah. Never
1: no, I mean, it's 2023. The case is still active. Uh, they're not searching for him, but the case is still active um and it 's not to say that there's been people who haven 't called in i mean there's there's been yeah. a bunch of people who not only have called the f b i but have sent in letters saying hey i 'm d b cooper um you know i'm i 'm alive and well in Portland and ha-ha, um they did find some of the cash. Uh, I think it was what late 80s. There was a father-son camping trip, and I was like right on I think it was
2: right in early 80s, like 1980. Yeah. Is that a February? It seemed like i like wow, that was a cold month. But
1: and the the funny thing is, is it wasn't far off of the they. It wasn't found far away from the Columbia Bar either.
2: I'm checking my notes, and that says a child found it with his dad, and the child that found it was Brian Ingram. Yep. And they found $5,800, which they did turn over to the FBI. But they were able to keep about half of them, half right. of the amount that they found. Yep. But so he, one of the $20 bills, guys, and he auctioned it off for close to 6 Graham.
1: Wow.
2: Yeah, so people want like, David Cooper is big. It's so big. Oh, you
1: know? he's huge. He's, he's a cult legend.
2: Uh, Doc, you would be going after the DNA test. So that brings up the question of what DNA you said is said high? You said he smoked cigarettes. Mm-hmm. You said he smoked bourbon. What DNA was there? I mean, you know, even. Like, Gave
0: that evidence, they didn't have the DNA and, you know, with them, but they do now. Yeah. There was just a sketchy amount of DNA. Um, right. If there was blood or something like that. I mean, nylon doesn't really absorb much. Um, water yes. washes a lot of stuff away.
2: Mm-hmm. And I think you're right. I think I, I saw or read something about them um, trying to get enough DNA from the pie, and it, mm-hmm. wasn't, it wasn't enough to be able to run it. Um, and I heard that the cigarettes would be more helpful but that they actually lost like, the cigarette. Right. And the glass that he drank over him from just all the other glass.
0: Yeah. So
2: it's too bad because I'm like, oh, it, I
1: Has escape in the 60s of the Anglin brothers uh, and maybe that's another show we should do about the escape uh, with the Anglin brothers because they, into the ether nobody's seen them since 63
0: well I've been under that bridge on the USS Um we didn't tighten the tide quite right so we had to send no. a welder up to cut the top part of the antenna off and we would have hit it you mean get yeah. under the bridge? You have a like go up there, yeah. 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 It's, you know, That's high limit. sitting on the deck, looking up. It's a long way <clears> up there, <throat> but you don't realize how high those antennas are. Right. You need
2: that
0: good high antenna to be picked up, you know, as far over the uh, horizon as you can.
1: Yeah, and on on the um. The Alcatraz escape theory is that they they made it's not a theory that they made homemade rafts. They made homemade rafts out of out of uh raincoats.
2: They figured out what they had. Yeah. Yep.
1: And the theory is, is that the tide was so strong that it just swept them out past the Marin headline headlands and they're gone. Yeah. Um but Everybody wants to say, "Hey, you know, we're behind this. That was a cool idea. They made it." But I don't. People say they did. People say they didn't. And it's the same same speculation with DB. Um, you know, he made the jump. Yeah, he lost his money, but he made the jump. Or you know, he had an unrecoverable problem in the air, and he's dead.
2: But see, like somebody with me, I think about some of like that okay. Yeah, he dead. No way that could happen. But there was a Richard McCoy who did, in six months, I think it was April of the next year, mm-hmm. he jumped out of an American airline flight, and $500,000, I think he did have a them um and them, and he jumped over a Right. <laughs> and he did survive. Um, the reason the FBI were able to find the person who did it was that he bribed in the bar where he did it. That, oh, I could totally do that, but I would ask for $500,000, He blah, blah. blah. Mm-hmm. He, like, uh, prophesied his own <clears throat> destruction. <laughs> um, they were able to go to, to get that. He was ex-military. Not surprising, right? Mm-hmm. Because he did a lot of the same things Cooper did, um, and the um, have that they found the five hundred thousand dollars in this house in a couple of minutes of life. Apparently, they had no idea there was half a million of it. Wow, I have a hard time believing that. Anyway, um, some, it, it is doable. I guess that was my point: is that it could have happened. Now, the FBI investigated this. and he he had really different physical characteristics and he just did not look Cooper. So they did investigate him thinking, well, maybe we got
1: Cooper, right? Right. But Um, funny that you mentioned a copycat. Um, So here's another one that I found and I'm reading a little excerpt here. Uh, On July 11th, 1980... A Cooper copycat right down to the mirrored aviator sunglasses attempt to hijack a Boeing 727 Northwest flight 608 abound for Portland at the Seattle airport as it was taxiing. A 17-year-old Glenn Kirk Tripp claimed to have a bomb and demanded a ransom of 100,000 and two parachutes. A quick-thinking stewardess slipped three Valiums into Tripp's drink and the plane never left the ground.
2: It is easy to feel
1: it is, it is easy to feel sorry for these guys. I'm
2: sorry, I'm going to deviate. I'm going to diverse, but isn't it a little funny like you're able to write Valium either in your own purse or somebody else who works for them? Well, you put your head up on your company? Maybe they carry that medicinally.
1: I don't know. And I'm I'm thinking, okay. So the steward has slipped on valium, but as the FAA, I'm going to be going. Oh, um, ma'am, where'd you get the valium? Do you have a prescription <laughs> for that? That's a so terrible. <clears throat> and and
2: I I so would do it if I, if I could do that. All right. So what so, happened? did
1: make it out. No, he um. Ta-da. During the ten hour standoff, Tripp lowered his demands and released all fifty two of the passengers, settling for three cheeseburgers and a demand and a demand to be driven from the airport in a rental car by two pilots left with him. When on scene FBI negotiator Ron Beener said the cheeseburgers will take a while. Tripp responded with forget the cheeseburgers. You said before you'd get the plane and you didn't, uh, so you, you'd better get the car. This is your last chance. Car arrived moments later, Tripp came down the steps. In seconds, he was jumped by the FBI, hiding under the plane.
0: The briefcase
1: was shoved up against his chest and snatched away. Later, it was revealed that the suitcase had no bombs, only a jacket. Convicted of first-degree kidnapping and extortion, but was sentenced to only 20 years probation. Wow.
2: Mm-hmm. And you
1: know what's funny?
2: Uh, like kind of he didn't even have to serve time.
1: This crackpot traded again in 83. I was going to say,
0: where is the
1: deterrent? <clears throat> <clears throat> Thursday, January 20th, 20th 1983... While on probation for his 1980s hijacking attempt, Trip now 20, tried hijacking the same flight, Northwest Flight 608, as it approached Portland International Airport from Seattle. This time, he was armed with a shoebox, and he was only demanding... and that he had not been able to see his wife and child there, as he claimed to have been in prison the last 10 years. His story later was discounted by law enforcement officials. After a three-hour standoff at 4.30 p.m., he had agreed to unload half of the 35 passengers who were exiting the plane via the exit ramp as two FBI agents standing on the shoulders of others Climbed through the car windows, surprised Trip in a sudden motion with the box, as if to throw it at the agent. And the agent fired a single shot with his 38 revolver, killing Trip instantly and ending the three-hour standoff.
0: That's and the cops figured out
1: that his story about Afghanistan was a ruse. Mm. Otherwise, the seals could have taken care of that. <laughs> right. So, well, I, I we're we're coming up on time here, but before we ended it, I, I kind of we were talking about um, being hung up in a tree in a parachute and trying to get down. And uh, years ago, I had a friend of mine that was in the U.S. Army Airborne. Um, during Grenada. And when they jumped in, uh, they jumped out of C-130, and he was always the first one to jump off of the ramp. And as, as practice, as soon as the green light went, he went out the door. Uh, so he was group lead. But his thing that he loved to do is as soon as he cleared the door – he would turn around on his back because they weren't doing static jumps at the time. They were pulling their own chutes. But he would turn around on his back so he could watch his guys exit the plane. Well, as soon as he turns around on his back, he can see the, the red and green exit lights in the plane go from green to red. And the plane takes a bank and banks off to the right they misdropped him.
0: Hey, guys.
1: So, oh, yeah. he pulls his, pulls his chute, lands, yeah. but he gets hung up in a tree. And it's not just any tree. It's a spiny palm tree.
0: Yep.
1: Yeah. So, and we're going to go a little longer than 10 seconds, but so maybe hour and a half later his boys find him they're all on the ground they all made it he's hanging up in this tree and uh unfortunately the shock of him opening up his chute uh his bag ripped off so he didn't have a knife on him he didn't you know um but so they're on the ground the good old doc goes oh i got a knife so she played
2: catch
1: oh, yeah. she played catch the knife with the doc for two hours. Wow. Finally got the knife, goes to put it up to the suspension line. Just you know, as he's cutting the line the doc goes, Oh, wait, wait, it's razor sharp. Oh. And she wasn't ready for it and he ended up on his butt on the ground. Oh. But it
2: didn't break anything. No. Always.
1: <clears throat> that would... I, think,
2: I know who you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Ml. Ml. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So. Yeah, definitely. I would say if if I if I were gonna do what DB did,
0: I would have chose
1: this, to... and I would have done it during the day.
2: I would have been at least had gloves on. And a pair of
1: boots. I mean, that wouldn't have thrown anybody. Just... Right. <laughs> well, that for I wanted to thank you two for coming on tonight, and um, you know, we we
0: talked
1: we talked about this subject all the way up until like I don't know, a couple minutes ago. So. We
0: really didn't run out of gas on it. Um, and you can, um, Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com.
2: It's my little escape.
0: Now Judy's the life of the party.
2: Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon.
0: Whoa. Take it easy, Judy.